The Time Traders by Andre Norton, Chapter 15. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by R.J. Davis. The Time Traders by Andre Norton. Chapter 15. It was such a small thing. A tag of ragged stuff looped around a length of splintered sapling. Ross climbed stiffly over the welter of drift caught on the sand split and pulled it loose, recognizing the string even before he touched it. That square knot was McNeil's tying, and as Mardock sat down weakly on the sand and mud, nervously fingering the twisted cord, staring vacantly at the river, his last fall hope died. The raft must have broken up, and neither Ash nor McNeil could have survived the ultimate disaster. Ross Murdoch was alone, marooned in a time which was not his own, with little promise of escape. That one thought blanked out his mind with its own darkness. What was the use of getting up again, of trying to find food for his empty stomach or warmth and shelter? He had always prided himself on being able to go it alone, had thought himself secure in that calculated loneliness. Now that belief had been washed away in the river along with most of the willpower which had kept him going these past days. Before, there had always been some goal, no matter how remote. Now he had nothing. Even if he managed to reach the mouth of the river, he had no idea of where or how to summon a sub from the overseas post. All three of the time travelers might already have been written off the rolls since they had not reported in. Ross pulled the rag free from the sapling and wreathed it in a tight bracelet about his grimed wrist for some unexplainable reason. Worn and tired, he tried to think ahead. There was no chance of again contacting Ulfa's tribe. Along with all the other woodland hunters, they must have fled before the advance of the horsemen. No, there was no reason to go back, and why make the effort to advance? The sun was hot. This is one of those spring days which foretell the ripeness of summer. Insects buzzed in the reed banks where a green sheen showed. Birds wheeled and circled in the sky. Some flocked disturbed, their cries reached Ross in hoarse calls of warning. He was still plastered with patches of dried mud and slime, the reek of it thick in his nostrils. Now Ross brushed at a splotch on his knee, picking loose flakes to expose the alien cloth of his suit underneath, seemingly unbefouled. All at once it became necessary to be clean again, at least. Ross waded into the stream, stooping to splash the brown water over his body and then rubbing away the resulting mud. In the sunlight, the fabric had a brilliant glow as if it not only drew the light, but reflected it. Wading further out into the water, he began to swim, not with any goal in view, but because it was easier than crawling back to land once more. Using the downstream current to supplement his skill, he washed both banks. He could not really hope to see either the raft or indications that his passengers had won to shore, but somewhere deep inside him, 
he had not yet accepted the probable. The effort of swimming broke through that fog of inertia which had held him since he had awakened that morning. It was with a somewhat healthier interest in life that Ross came ashore again on an arm of what was a bay or inlet angling back into the land. Here the banks of the river were well above his head, and believing that he was well sheltered, he stripped, hanging his suit in the sunlight and letting the unusual heat of the day soothe his body. A raw fish, cornered in the shallows and scooped out, furnished one of the best meals he had ever tasted. He had reached for the suit draped over a willow limb when the first and only warning that his fortunes had once again changed came, swiftly, silently, and with deadly promise. One moment the willows had moved gently in the breeze, and then a spear suddenly set them all quivering. Rusk, clutching the suit to him with a fine grab, skated about in the sand, going to one knee in his haste. He found himself completely at the mercy of the two men standing on the bank well above him. Unlike Opa's people or the beaker traders, they were very tall. With heavy braids of light or sun-bleached hair swinging forward on their wide chest, their leather tunics hung to mid-thigh above leggings which were bound to their limbs with painted straps. Cuff bracelets of copper ranged their forearms, and necklaces of animal teeth and beads displayed their personal wealth. Ross could not remember having seen their like on any of the briefing tapes at the base. One spear had been a warning, but a second was held ready, so Ross made the age-old signal for surrender, reluctantly dropping his suit and raising his hands palm out and shoulder high. Friend? Ross asked in the beaker tongue. The traders ranged far, and perhaps there was a chance they had had contact with this tribe. The spear twirled, and the younger stranger effortlessly leaped down the bank, paddling over to Ross to pick up the suit he had dropped, holding it up while he made some comment to his companion. He seemed fascinated by the fabric, pulling and smoothing it between his hands, and Ross wondered if there was a chance of trading it for his own freedom. Both men were armed, not only with the long-bladed daggers favored by the beaker folk, but also with axes. When Ross made a slight effort to lower his hands, the man before him reached to his belt axe, growling what was plainly a warning. Ross blinked, realizing that they might well knock him out and leave him behind, taking the suit with him. Finally, they decided in favor of including him in their loot. Throwing the suit over one arm, the stranger caught Ross by the shoulder and pushed him forward roughly. The pebble beach was painful to Ross's feet, and the breeze which whipped about him as he reached the top of the bank reminded him only too forcibly of his ordeal in the glacial world. Murdoch was tempted to make a sudden dash out on the point of the bank and dive into the river, but it was already too late. The man who was holding the spear had moved behind him, and Ross's wrist, held in a vice grip at the small of his back, kept him prisoner as he was pushed on into the meadow. There three shaggy horses grazed, their nose ropes gathered into the hands of a third man. A sharp stone, half buried in the ground, changed the pattern of the day. Ross's heels scraped against it, 
and the resulting pain triggered his rebellion into explosion. He threw himself backwards, his bruised heel sliding between the feet of his captor, bringing them both to the ground with himself on top. The other expelled air from his lungs in a grunt of surprise, and Ross whipped over, one hand grasping the hilt of the tribesman's dagger, while the other, free of that prisoning wrist lock, chopped at the fellow's throat. Dagger out and ready, Ross faced the men in a half-crouch as he had been drilled. They stared at him in open-mouthed amazement. Then too late the spears went up. Ross placed the point of his looted weapon at the throat of the now-quiet man by whom he knelt. He spoke the language he had learned from Ulfa's people. You strike, this one dies. They must have read the determined purpose in his eyes, for slowly, reluctantly, the spears went down. Having gained so much of a victory, Ross dared more. Take. He motioned to the waiting horses. Take and go. For a moment he thought that this time they would meet his challenge, but he continued to hold the dagger above the brown throat of the man who was now moaning faintly. His threat continued to register, for the other man shrugged the suit from his arm, left it lying on the ground, and retreated. Holding the nose rope of his horse, he mounted, waved the herder up also, and both of them rode slowly away. The prisoner was slowly coming around, so Ross only had time to pull on the suit. He had not even fastened the breast studs before those blue eyes opened. A sunburned hand flashed to a belt, but the dagger and axe which had once hung there were now in Ross's possession. He watched the tribesman carefully as he finished dressing. What you do? The words were in the speech of the forest people, distorted by a new accent. You go. Ross pointed to the third horse the others had left. Behind, I go. He indicated the river. I take these. He patted the dagger and the axe. The other scowled. Not good. Ross laughed a little hysterically. Not good you, he agreed. Good me. To his surprise, the tribesman's stiff face relaxed, and the fellow gave a bark of laughter. He sat up, rubbing at his throat, a big grin pulling at the corners of his mouth. You, Hunter, the man pointed northeast to the woodlands, fringing the mountains. Ross shook his head. Traitor, me. Traitor, the other repeated. Then he tapped one of the wide metal cuffs at his wrist. Trade this, that, more things. Where? Ross pointed downstream, by bitter water. Trade there. The man appeared puzzled. Why you here? Ride river water, like you ride he said, pointing to the horse. Ride on trees, many trees tied together. Trees break apart, I come here. The concession of a raft voyage apparently got across, for the tribesman was nodding. Getting to his feet, he walked across to take up the nose rope of a, the waiting horse. You come camp, Foscar, Foscar chief. He like to you show trick how you take Tuka. Make him sleep, hold his axe knife. Ross hesitated. This Tuka seemed friendly now, but would that friendliness last? He shook his head. I go to bitter water, my chief there. Tuka was scowling again. You speak crooked words. Your chief there. He pointed eastward with a dramatic stretch of the arm. Your chief speak Foscar. Say he give much these. 
He touched his copper cuffs. Good knives, axes. Get you back. Ross stared at him without understanding. Ash? Ash in this Fuscar's camp? Offering a reward for him? But how could that be? How you know my chief? Tuka laughed, this time derisively. You wear shining skin. Your chief wears shiny skin. He say find other shiny skin. Give many good things to man who bring you back. Shiny skin? The suit from the alien ship? Was it the ship people? Ross remembered the light on him as he climbed out of the Red Village. He must have been sighted by one of the spacemen. But why were they searching for him? Alerting the natives in an effort to scoop him up. What made Ross Murdoch so important that they must have him? He only knew that he was not going to be taken if he could help it. That he had no desire to meet this chief, who had offered treasure for his capture. You will come. Tuka went into action, his mount flashing forward almost in a running leap at Ross, who stumbled back when horse and rider loomed over him. He swung up the axe, but it was a weapon with which he had had no training, too heavy for him. As his blow met only thin air, the shoulder of the mount hit him, and Ross went down, avoiding by less than a finger's breadth the thud of an unshod hoof against his skull. Then the rider landed on him, crushing him flat. A fist connected with his jaw, and for Ross the sun went out. He found himself hanging across a support which moved with a rocking gait, whose pounding hurt his head, keeping him half-dazed. Ross tried to move, but he realized that his arms were behind his back, fastened wrist to wrist, with a warm weight centered in the small of his spine to hold him face down on a horse. He could do nothing except endure the discomfort as best he could and hope for a speedy end to the gallop. Over his head passed a cackle of speech. He caught short glimpses of another horse matching pace to the one that carried him. Then they swept into a noisy place where the shouting of many men made a din. The horse stopped and Ross was pulled from its back and dropped to the trodden dust to lie blinking up dizzily, trying to focus on the scene about him. They had arrived at the camp of the horsemen, whose hide tents served as a backdrop for the fair, long-haired giants and the tall women hovering about to view the captive. The circle about him then broke, and men stood aside for a newcomer. Ross had believed that his original captors were physically imposing, but this one was their master. Lying on the ground at the chieftain's feet, Ross felt like a small and helpless child. Foscar, if Foscar this was, could not yet have entered middle age, and the muscles which moved along his arms and across his shoulders as he leaned over to study Tuka's prize made him bear strong. Ross glared up at him, the same hot rage which had led to his attack on Tuka, now urging him to the only defiance he had left, words. Look well, Foscar. Free me, and I would do more than look at you, he said in the speech of the woods hunters. Foscar's blue eyes widened, and he lowered a fist which could have swallowed in its grasp both of Ross's hands. Linking those great fingers in the stuff of the suit and drawing the captive to his feet with no sign that his act had required any effort. Even standing, 
Ross was a good eight inches shorter than the chieftain, yet he put up his chin and eyed the other squarely without giving ground. So, yet still my hands are tied. He put into that all the taunting inflection he could summon. His reception by Tuka had given him one faint clue to the character of these people. They might be brought to acknowledge the worth of one who stood up to them. Child. The fist shifted from its grip on the fabric covering Ross's chest to his shoulder, and now under its compulsion Ross swayed back and forth. Child, from somewhere Ross raised that short laugh, asked Tuka. I be no child, Foscar. Tuka's axe, Tuka's knife, they were in my hand. A horse Tuka had to use to bring me down. Foscar regarded him intently and then grinned. Sharp tongue, he commented. Tuka lost knife. Axe? So? And Nar? He called over his shoulder, and one of the men stepped out a pace beyond his fellows. He was shorter and much younger than his chief. With a boy's rangy slimness and an open, good-looking face, his eyes bright on Foscar with a kind of eager excitement. Like the other tribesmen, he was armed with belt dagger and axe. And since he wore two necklaces and both cuff bracelets and upper armlets as did Foscar, Ross thought he must be a relative of the older man. Child, Foscar clapped his hand on Ross's shoulder and then withdrew the hold. Child, he indicated Ennar, who reddened. You take from Ennar axe, knife, Foscar ordered, as you took from Tuka. He made a sign and someone cut the thongs about Ross's wrist. Ross rubbed one numbed hand against the other, setting his jaw. Oscar stung this young fellow with his contemptuous child, so the boy would be eager to match all his skill against the prisoner. This would not be as easy as his taking Tuka by surprise, but if he refused, Oscar might well order him killed out of hand. He had chosen to be defiant. He would have to do his best. Take, axe, knife, Oscar stepped back, waving at his men to open out a ring encircling the two young men. Ross felt a little sick as he watched Ennard's hand go to the haft of the axe. Nothing had been said about Ennard not using his weapons in defense, but Ross discovered that there was some sense of sportsmanship in the tribesmen after all. It was Tuka who pushed to the chief's side and said something which made Bosco roar, bull-voiced at his youthful champion. Inar's hand came away from the axe hilt as if that polished wood were white hot. And he transferred his discomfiture to Ross as the other understood. Inar had to win now for his own pride's sake, and Ross felt he had to win for his life. They circled wearily, Ross watching his opponent's eyes rather than those half-closed hands held at waist level. Back at the base he had been matched with ash and before Ash with the tough-bodied, skilled, and merciless trainers in unarmed combat. He had had beaten into his bruised flesh knowledge of holes and blows intended to save his skin in just such an encounter. But then he had been well-fed, alert, prepared. He had not been knocked silly and then transported for miles slung across a horse after days of exposure and hard usage. It remained to be learned, was Ross Murdoch as tough as he always thought himself to be? Tough or not, he was in this until he won or dropped. 
Comments from the crowd aroused Ennar to the first definite action. He charged, stooping low in a wrestler's stance, but Ross squatted even lower. One hand flicked to the churned dust of the ground and snapped up again, sending a cloud of grit into the tribesman's face. Then their bodies met with a shock and Ennar sailed over Ross's shoulder to skid along the earth. Had Ross been fresh, the contest would have ended there, and then in his favor. But when he tried to whirl and throw himself on his opponent, he was too slow. Inar was not waiting to be pinned flat, and it was Ross's turn to be caught at a disadvantage. A hand shot out to catch his leg just above the ankle, and once again Ross obeyed his teaching, following easily at that pull to land across his opponent. Ennar, disconcerted by the too quick success of his attack, was unprepared for this. Ross rolled, trying to escape steel-fingered hands, his own chopping out in edgewise blows, striving to serve Ennar as he had Tuka. He had to take a lot of punishment, though he managed to elude the powerful bear's hug in which he knew the other was laboring to engulf him, a hold which would speedily crush him into submission. Clinging to the methods he had been taught, he fought on. Only now he knew, with a growing panic, that his best was not good enough. He was too spent to make an end. Unless he had some piece of great good luck, he could only delay his own defeat. Fingers clawed viciously at his eyes, and Ross did what he had never thought to do in any fight. He snapped wolfishly, his teeth closing on flesh as he brought up his knee and drove it home into the body wingling on his. There was a gasp of hot breath in his face as Ross called upon the last rags of his strength. Tearing loose from the other's slackened hold, he scrambled to one knee. Inar was also on his knees, crouching like a four-legged beast ready to spring. Ross risked everything on a last gamble. Clasping his heads together, he raised them as high as he could and brought them down on the nape of the other's neck. Inar sprawled forward, face down in the dust, where seconds later Ross joined him. This concludes the reading of Chapter 15.